The scripture reading today is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. with me. God, we pray that um, in this moment that you would keep uh, 
our desire for perfection, our desire uh, to be well put together, to have everything all figured out. God, I pray that you would replace that with the desire that you have for us, and that even in our imperfections, even in our shortcomings, even in our sin, your love for us is so great. And so would you open our eyes to see that this morning? Amen. So I can't be on Twitter anymore. <laughs> this has nothing to do with Elon Musk, just as a disclaimer. Uh, I can't be on Twitter. Uh, this is something I figured out in the pandemic. Uh, while many Americans were doing more productive things with their time, like learning how to make sourdough and watching Tiger King, I was quickly learning that I should not have a Twitter account because it's bad for my mental health. Um, some people can. I'm not one of those people. Like, so no judgment. I, I'm not one of those people. The algorithm has got me. It's got me pegged. Um, what social media, specifically Twitter, does is, is uh, it brings out my... Uh, tendency for outrage, and as you know, there's a lot to be angry about these days. And so my outrage uh, is often reserved uh, for a certain group of people. It's the keyboard warriors. And if you have no idea who I'm talking about, maybe you haven't been paying enough attention, because these are the people who are really making a difference in the world. Really. I mean, like, when, when many of us Americans were uh, locked in our homes, sheltering in place. Uh, these people did the unthinkable. They started podcasts. They got on YouTube. And they got on Twitter to put out messages of inspiration and hope and love. It was like Christmas every day in a 120-character tweet. Just, I love it. Um, and so I can't have Twitter because it's bad for me. <laughs> it's the train wreck that I can't look away from. I just can't seem to look away. I don't have, like, the internal machinery uh, to look away. It's like giving Kenya a baby. I just can't have it. Um, I'll just eat up that Twitter takedown just as much as the next person. Um, I'm, like, I'm like the embodiment of Michael Jackson, you know, eating the popcorn. You know the GIF, the Michael Jackson eating popcorn GIF? That's who I am. Um, it's bad. The real tragedy in the fragmentation of our social discourse uh, that I see, at least in my estimation, is that there's so much passion, there's so much ambition, zeal, that's wasted. And at the end of the day, I just, I'm, I'm not sure, like, if it does good at the end of, like, how much good it accomplishes at the end of the day, I'm not sure. Um, it, it's wasted zeal, right, misdirected zeal. And I'm reminded a little bit of that uh, when I was preparing for this sermon. Some of us might be familiar with this passage as the origin story for the Apostle Paul uh, before he became the apostle that we all know and dislike, I mean love. Uh, Saul was a religious extremist. St. Paul can take a joke. He can take a joke. He's fine. In our story, we have a portrait of Saul unhinged. 
And he's using violent tactics to intimidate the disciples of Jesus to try to crush the movement. And so he's journeying to Damascus to round up and imprison the followers of God. And I want, to, I want us to draw, um, uh, us to pay close attention to what Luke is doing right from the get-go. Because before we get to what we know, from what most of us know, that Saul will eventually see, right, receive physical healing, Luke is cluing us in to the spiritual condition of Saul right from the get-go. He portrays Saul as someone whose vision is severely impaired. Saul's participation in state violence reveals that spiritual condition. Here we have Saul. Saul believes, Saul believes so strongly, so ardently, so zealously that he is following the voice of God. Saul believes that he knows that voice. Saul believes that he is certain that he is following and doing God's work. And when, rea- when in reality, he's blind to God and God's movement. And that's why the, the question that Saul says to Jesus, these, these are the only lines that Saul is given in the passage. Who are you, Lord? Is so fitting. I love the sight imagery that Luke uses. After encountering the risen Christ, Saul is able to open his eyes, but he cannot see. That's verse 7. Saul's companions are even more blind to Jesus. They heard the voice, but they saw nothing, no one. It's beautifully poetic. The blind leading the blind. And this theme of sight is all over Luke's gospel. The mission of the Jewish Messiah is not simply to liberate the oppressed, but to give sight to the blind. And I think we're pretty good at remembering the former. I think the latter is what we have trouble remembering, but this is what we see all throughout Acts, is that the Spirit, she's performing acts of liberation, setting the captives free, setting the oppressed free, and at the same time, also, giving sight to the blind. And that's what we have going on in this text. We have two instances of blindness that um, I'm arguing for. Uh, It's not just Saul who's blind. Saul's the obvious one. He's the one that we're most familiar with. And the other is not so obvious. And that's the character of Ananias. And I'm going to focus, I want to focus on Ananias uh, for the remainder of the sermon uh, because Ananias suffers from a blindness that I think is more subtle to us. It's it's not uh, as obvious and so it's not in Ananias' ability to see God, like Saul. It's in Ananias' inability to see Saul. You see, this is a pivotal moment in Saul's life. God is going to appear to Saul to dramatically alter uh, the direction of his life. But the text is suggesting to us we don't get a restored Saul, one who sees anew without Ananias first saying a new. And so what do I mean by this? I'm aided by uh, the language psychologists use in object relations theory. In object relations theory, uh, it purports that uh, from early childhood, we form internal images of our mind of the external world, and this is the way that we make sense of each other and the world. Right now, my son, uh, Joaquin, is making a new internal object 
um, or forming a new internal object of peanut butter. We introduced him to peanut butter yesterday. What is this gooey, smooth, creamy substance? And this is natural, right? This is something that all of us do. Um, the downside is this, is when there is an over-reliance on what we know, on the mental images that we have in our heads. And so instead of relating to each other as people, as dynamic, living, changing human beings, I relate to you as the image that I have in my mind. So last weekend I took uh, our students, about 30 um, of our students and leaders, uh, to a spring retreat. And uh, one of the things that uh, we do in our spring retreat, you know, we try to build community, we try to have a lot of fun, so we go on a ropes course, our leaders put on the coolest game of zombie apocalypse I've ever seen, complete with blood capsules and the whole get up, and it was beautiful. And so we try to, we try to build our community by uh, having shared experiences. Another thing we try to do is we try to really take the faith journeys of our students seriously. And so one of the things that uh, we're challenging our students right from the get-go is emphasizing that it's often how we relate to God that is the issue that keeps us from seeing God, because we relate to God as an object a lot of the times. And so it's not what we don't know about God, but what we do know or think we know about God that keeps us from seeing God. And so my challenge to students sounded a little provocative. I said that we need to embrace what Dr. Cornell West calls a healthy dose of atheism. We need to become atheists to the false ideas that we have in our minds of God, which are often idols. So we relate to God as an object. We can relate to each other as objects. You can catch it if, you hear, if, you, if you're paying close attention to our language all the time. You can catch these tendencies when we slap labels on someone. When we make snap judgments about them. Oh, they're just filling the stereotype. And it's really easy for us to reduce each other to an Enneagram number. Or your family of origin or the weird music that you like. And on one hand, like I said, this is something that all of us do. It's natural. But when reductionism becomes the primary way that we relate to each other, instead of as living people, this skews our view of each other. It becomes distorted. And so that's what's going on in this passage. Ananias is no longer able to see Saul as a person rather than an object. And this means reducing Saul to his worst tendencies and actions. And so to be fair, I want to concede that Ananias has every reason to question God. He has every reason to not want to meet Saul. Ananias is one of Saul's potential targets. And everything that Ananias knows about Saul is not hearsay, it's the truth. Saul is a cold-blooded killer. That's the truth. But the question for Ananias is, is this the whole picture? Does that fully encapsulate Saul? All that Saul is and all that Saul can be. And that's the Spirit's challenge. It's not to dismiss or condone or suppress 
or deny anything that Saul has done, to forget about it, but to view Saul with the eyes of faith. Saul can be more than what he is. In order for this to occur, uh, Ananias cannot define Saul by the worst of what he's done. But what God says, Saul can be. Theologian Willie Jennings describes this internal tension so well. So now Ananias must must face a decision. Do I act on a truth about someone, a truth that may put me in danger, or do I follow the word of the Lord and touch this dangerous person? Luke does not tell us whether or not Ananias was afraid of Saul, but only that he was honest with God. We must not rush past his honesty with God. He reminds God that Saul is a killer, and God in turn calls Saul his vessel, who will carry the name of Jesus. God sees us differently, no doubt. But the question for the disciples is, can we see with God? Can we see those who are in rumor or in truth dangerous as God sees them with a future drenched in divine desire? Can we see with God? I love Jennings' point there because it places less emphasis on our knowledge at any given moment And it starts with God's desire for that individual. And if we just allow ourselves to try to grasp God's desire for humanity, if we just try, we might see that God God wants even the most hateful and hardened of people. So somewhere out there thinking, That's not really useful to me. How is that useful in the real world? And if if this if this smacks you like, uh, or smacks of wishful thinking, or that 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 this is unrealistic, I'm not asking us to think in abstractions. I'm not. I I really want to just level with you. I, I want us to see that the scope of our field of vision, our perspective is vastly limited. And yet we are so confident in what we know. We're overly confident in our knowledge about people with whom we have deeply held biases towards. And we would be wise to take a cue from the wise Jedi master, Obi-Wan. Your eyes deceive you. Do not trust them. This is why Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel writes, Our sight is suffused with knowing. Instead of feeling painfully the lack of knowing what we see, the principle to be kept in mind is to know what we see rather than see what we know. Because you never know what the Spirit is going to do. Once upon a time, I was a snot-nosed middle schooler in youth group. I wasn't very popular. I uh, had an unimpressive amount of athletic ability. I know that this is very difficult for some of you to 
especially for our, our students. I know that's very difficult for you to imagine. Um, I'm also told that I was annoying and whiny. Our middle schools are nothing like that. This is me. This is me we're talking about. Uh, but even though I was this uh, socially awkward and emotionally immature middle school kid, uh, that, that didn't stop my youth pastor, Justin, from believing in me. And that was a time that I really, I really needed someone to believe in me. I had a strange relationship with my father, uh, not the healthiest home environment for a middle school, high school kid. Um, and at that time, I needed someone to affirm the best in me, the things that I, I could not see in myself. And I remember there were moments uh, where, like, emotionally, I was just a wreck. You know, like, I, would, I got so good at masking that. I'd, just emotionally, internally, like, just a wreck, just beaten down. And I remember, like, specific moments where, where Justin would come around me and, like, affirm me. I remember it so clearly. I remember his words. I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what he said. He'd say things like, you know, you're the closest thing I have to a spiritual son in the faith. You know, sometimes, Josh, I, I, uh, I don't know why I'm doing ministry, but you're actually the reason why I'm here. I remember holding on to those moments, like, with my life. Like, with my life. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure where I would be if, if it wasn't for Justin or others like him who were investing in me and affirming and seeing that good in me. And that's what it means to look at someone with the eyes of faith. You can't, you can't go off what you know because what you know oftentimes is, is not pretty. There's a lot of work to be done. And some of you who are teachers and coaches, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you got to look past the growth edges and you got to see something that no one else sees. And this potential is invisible to other people. And you have to search for it. But when you see it, you're like, that's it. That's it right there. And so what you do is you got to drill down those traits, that character, those skills, until that person starts to see it. But it starts with you, your vision. And it's a risk. Oh, my gosh, it's a risk. It's an act of faith. But isn't that the way that Jesus looks at us? It's not how Christ looks at you and me. We see this on the cross, most vividly at the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even at his most vulnerable moment, his weakest moments, Jesus does not give up on the fact that you and I can be more than our worst moments, right? Doesn't give up on that. What does it mean for our church community to see with God? I don't have the answers to that. I'm posing this question because I think that that's what this text is impressing on us this morning. Maybe it means having a zeal for people, the people we don't want in our circles, who are not welcome. Can we dare to look 
at our theological and our political enemy and say to them, this is not the end of your story. Can we look at those people who, for all intents and purposes, mean us harm? I mean, can we look at them with the longing of the Spirit of God, who has a longing for them to see? Can we have that kind of zeal for people? Do we dare to meet with them? Do we dare to call them sister, brother, sibling, and say in faith, it's not the end of your story? And so as we seek justice and peace in our city and our world, may we be so bold to see others in this way. May we trust in the Spirit's vision for their lives and not our own. And when we do, may the scales fall from our eyes too when we see others transfigured by divine love. Pray with me. Spirit, would you give us the eyes to see that our knowledge is limited, that we don't have all the answers? Would you keep us from the certainty of a Saul, the blind certainty that believes that we're often doing your work, when in reality we can't see you? Allow your love to flood our vision allowed to flood our sight, our hearts for your world, and may it transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.